Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, November 4th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to dive into the third episode of the HBO original series Watchmen, which is titled She Was Killed by Space Junk. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Huai Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Well, first of all, guys, we have to thank uh, Chris K for the opening theme song. We put out the call, I think it was last week, asking for people to send in uh, potential theme songs for the episode. And Chris K answered, and uh, I thought it was pretty fantastic. So thank you for that. And also, at uh, Sir Zaps with a Z on Twitter, uh, sort of mocked up a logo for us. So you can probably see that. Uh, either in your feed or as the the image for this specific episode. So thank you to Sir Zaps as well. Um, so yeah, you guys, uh, the fan community is uh, is is coming in hot on this episode. So we appreciate that, um, guys. Let's dive into this episode. Let's start off with a, a discussion about Lori Blake. This is the character played by Jean Smart in this episode. This is her sort of introduction, or, or I guess reintroduction into the world of Watchmen because she was one of the original characters who appeared in the graphic novel, right, Chris? What's the backstory for this character? Right. So uh, Lori Blake, um, she's now adopted her her father's last name. She didn't have that in the comic. Her, her last name in the comic, I can never pronounce it, but it's Juzpeksiki. I cannot pronounce <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's it used to be something else. Um, she's the uh, second Silk Spectre. The original Silk Spectre was her mother, Sally Jupiter. And um, Blake is, of course, the last name of the comedian. And the story goes in the comic that uh, um, the comedian um, sexually assaulted Lori's mother. And that's how Lori uh, was born. But we later learned that they actually had, you know, the, the sexual assault did happen, but they also had an affair. And that actually is what ended up resulting in, in Lori's birth. So years have gone by now, 30 years, actually, and... Now she's a uh, hardened FBI agent leading a 
anti-vigilante task force and she's also taken her father's last name and she's played by gene smart who is uh phenomenal here she steals the whole show and i'm so uh excited to have her on the show now because i thought this was like the best episode so far primarily because of gene smart's performance what did you think about gene smart as Lori blake ht i totally agree she just completely ran away with this entire show honestly in this episode I was just, I had seen her in Legion, and um, she was all, always excellent in that. But this was the show that, or this was the episode that really made me just think of how excellent Gene Smart is. And um, yeah, I I, uh, I agree completely with, with Chris, and I, I can't go further into it without, uh, I guess, going into spoilers for why she is so good in this episode. Yeah, and I think we should put it on the table now that in case people are listening for maybe for the first time and haven't listened to the, the two other episodes we did, that we are going to spoil this episode, so we haven't yet. But um, yeah, from here on out, I think we're going to be sort of jumping all over the, the timeline of this episode and, and spoiling stuff. So if you haven't watched the episode yet and you want to, definitely seek that out and then come back and, and listen to us. So um, Lori has sort of a complicated relationship with masks and heroes. Uh, Chris, as you alluded to, she was a hero herself. And then in this big introduction scene we get during this like FBI sting, we see her shoot a costumed vigilante named, I think his name was Mr. Shadow, uh, in the back and somebody, he survives because there's this one shot of him being wheeled out on the stretcher and his hand is sort of twitching a little bit as he moves by the camera. But somebody says to her, something along the lines of like, how did you know that the body armor that he was wearing body armor and that the bullets would, would uh, be stopped. And she like, just, you know, straight face doesn't respond, I think. And so, uh, yeah. That... Cause in any other show or movie, you would usually get, I didn't in a very cool and grizzled right. <laughs> way. But uh, I love even more that she just walks away without saying anything. Yeah. And, and that's quite a, a swing for a character who used to be a vigilante herself to just be, um, so against them that she was willing to like basically kill them without any, um, I don't know. What did you make of that, Chris? Like the, that character's introduction and, and her attitude toward costumed vigilantes. I mean, she's been through a lot. So the backstory is she originally was in a relationship with Dr. Manhattan. They <laughs> broke up and then she got into a relationship with uh, Night Owl, who uh, we learned through this episode, even though they don't come out and say it. But we learned that he's in prison. And uh, as we also if you if you read the the supplementary material on PTpedia. And by the way, we finally meet PD this week. But uh, if you, you you'll learn that. Both Silk Spectre and um, Night Owl got arrested in, in the 90s, and Silk Spectre actually took on the name The Comedian after her father. And, uh, you know, at some point, their their paths diverged where she became an FBI agent and he's still in prison for whatever reason. So we don't know what happened there, but I'm wondering if, I don't know, it seems like the, the uh, deputy director of the FBI, there's like a, a sort of a briefing ceremony sequence later in the episode and he sort of like makes a joke about Lori's past like I don't remember exactly what the joke is but it's sort of like this offhanded reference that like he clearly it knows about mass I think yeah, yeah yeah he clearly knows that she was um you know the silk specter and then the comedian so it's like uh <laughs> I don't know that I guess the question is why is she free and why is Night Owl still imprisoned? And we don't know the answer to that yet. Maybe the, the show is going to get into it. I think Damon Lindelof has said that Dan Dreberg, the character 
the alter the what is it the alter ego of Night Owl is not going to appear in this first season of the show, but right. um, yeah. Anyway, we may still I find mean, out. Like my guess would be she's she did some sort of like deal where she agreed to work for the FBI for her freedom and night Al did not. That's, that's just me spitballing here. I could be wrong, Yeah. but at the same time, she's also, sorry, what'd you say? Oh no, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. I was going to say at the same time, she's also clearly like risen in the ranks too. So it's not just, she didn't just cut some simple deal to like do grunt work. She's like excelled at her job. So it's, it's an interesting path the character has gone down. Right. I also want to uh, comment on the uh, interesting sort of strengthening of her connection to her father uh, in the sort of parallel that she has with her career and her father's, uh, the comedian's sort of ties with U.S. militarism, working as a basically a weapon of the U.S. military in the Vietnam War. And um, that sort of being referred to later in the episode when he ta- she talks about the uh, compartment in her father's closet which held the star spangled uniform that he uh wore as one of those u.s military weapons so i do think it's interesting that she kind of in a sense sold her soul to the u.s government similar to how her father did all those years back yeah for sure and also the whole episode is sort of framed around her telling a very long joke just like Mm -hmm. her father the comedian so she's like become this sort of like alter ego of her own father this sort of like mirror image in a way yeah because she's not like that in the comic her her, she's she's not nearly as cool as she was in that in last night's (laughs) episode in the comic so she's clearly sort of like evolved into uh, a completely different person yeah or as jaded she wasn't as jaded in the comic either and it seems like she's she's sort of adopted more of like that um real uh like nihilistic worldview um, mm-hmm. but, uh, she also says after uh, somebody says to, about Mr. Shadow, like, why did you shoot him? He was a hero. And she's like, he's not a hero. He's a fucking joke. So there's another like literal reference within the, the text of the show about her telling a joke, uh, sort of going along with the, the overarching one that, that sort of, um, extends throughout the episode. Um, but this complicated relationship she has with masks extends not only to, you know, her shooting costume vigilantes in the back, but also, uh, in the original comic, there was a sex scene, at least one sex scene, with um, between her and Night Owl, the other costumed hero, hero that she was in a relationship with in that in that comic. And they both had to be in costume to, uh, I guess, <laughs> achieve climax or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, th- it's interesting that uh, Chris, you mentioned Petey, and, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. But uh, jumping ahead a little bit to the to the end of this episode, we see that. Uh, Lori and Petey sleep together in this motel and the camera pans over him and we see that he's wearing this Lone Ranger looking mask that he brought with him and in public she's sort of um, or in a business setting she sort of dressed him down for even like uh, raising the possibility of wearing that she was like you're better than this that we you know we're the FBI like that the cops wear masks we don't have to basically but then in the bedroom behind closed doors she basically forces him to wear a mask so it's it seems that there's still some uh, you know complicated feelings there perhaps some sort of like fetishization going on um, yeah. but uh, um, yeah it just adds to the the sort of layering of her character I do think that there is a sort of reluctance for her to get let, let go of the past, as we see not only in that scene, but also in the interior decoration of her apartment. She has a lot of pop art of the, the Watchmen and herself, which seems like an unusual thing to, to have if mm-hmm. you were trying to reject that lifestyle and you know be 
part of that anti-vigilante task force. Um, and, you know, there's also like the symbolism of her feeding her pet owl in a cage right. uh, as Night Owl is in prison. So it's clear that she has uh, some trouble letting go of that past. Uh, you know, the giant blue dildo, too, of course, which we'll <laughs> dedicate plenty of time to talking about. Yes, yes. How could we not? Uh, so let's jump ahead a little bit. Um, I, I think his name is uh, Senator Keene Jr. Shows up at uh, Lori's place and basically says, hey, you're going to Tulsa. Um so he he's a presidential hopeful. Crime is down 80% in Tulsa. We learn that Tulsa is sort of like the um, the main city that is operating, adopting this Defensive Police Act that he sort of pushed through, and it's it's a it's tied to his legacy as a politician. It's a huge deal for him. I'm wondering what you guys think because based on what happens in this episode with the um, at the funeral sequence, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But do you guys think that he is orchestrating these events to sort of draw attention to himself and, and to sort of boost his, I don't know, but I've, I just feel like there might be something a little sneaky sort of, with, uh, sort of like he's the, he's the new Vedit in a way where he's like pulling the strings behind the scenes. That, that yeah, actually... yeah. Yeah. Adrian Vite. Yeah. He, he's sort of like, um, he's got uh, James Walk, the, the actor sort of has this, uh, this like shit eating grin all the time. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's so clean cut and so like all American and Adrian Veidt was like that in the comic too. Like he's this blonde, tall, you know, muscular guy who seems very, you know, on the up and up, but he has, he's willing to do dastardly things in, in service of a, what he believes in as like a larger ideal. And I'm just wondering if, you know, maybe, uh, Keen could be in some way responsible for Judd's death in order to sort of turn the spotlight more on Tulsa and on him. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this theory really makes a lot of sense, considering um, what happens at the funeral sequence and how he gets kidnapped by a Seventh Cavalry member, and Laurie comes out of nowhere and, and shoots that guy in the head. And he couldn't have known that that would happen, but he also did make sure that Lori was going to be in Tulsa. So maybe he, I don't know, maybe he knows her and then sort of could try to put the pieces together. But that seems like uh, some genius level shit for him to be able to know exactly, you know, that that exact order of events would happen. But, um, you know, I, I guess putting aside like the nitty gritty, do you guys feel like there's something uh, darker going on with this Keen character? I don't know if he would be orchestrating the entire thing, but I I wouldn't be surprised if he had some sort of connection to the events transpiring because we do hear, we did hear last episode how there was a vast insidious conspiracy uh, in Tulsa. Perhaps he's part of it. Um, I can't say as far as like, as it is now, whether he's involved, but I think it's a good theory. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so Chris, as you mentioned, we we find uh, or we meet Petey in this episode of the, the uh, supplemental material website Petypedia. His name is Dale Agent Dale Petey, which I have, feel like has to be a, a shout out to Agent Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks because um, Damon Lindelof is a big fan of, of Twin Peaks, and uh, I just feel like that kind of character. Um, <laughs> it, that, that's got to be a shout out in my mind. But uh, what do we know about this character, Chris? What, what does he um, what does he do in this episode? Why does he matter? What, what's the deal with Petey? Well, he's a big old nerd and he's uh, he pretty much is like an expert on all the events that happened in the Watchmen comic. He, he wrote like a 
dissertation on it. He, he has like a major in in this stuff. He, he's he's an expert in the backstory, and uh, I I can't help but feel like he's going to be there for like walking exposition anytime they need to remind us of something from the comic. We have this character here now, um, but he's also, you know, he, he's also naive in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, he knows all about all this stuff, but he's never been like out in the field like this. He, you know, as he says, he was hot. The FBI recruited him to run a projector, basically. And this is his first time really out and about because Lori brings him, uh, you know, along on, on to Tulsa. So uh, I, but I like this character. I, I, I don't have the actor's name in front of me, but I think he does a really good job with as playing this sort of like nerdy dweeb who just happens to know a lot of stuff. I feel Despite like him being responsible for PDPDO, Chris. <laughs> it's not his fault. He has that name. It's Damon Lindelof's fault. And he, sh- he should be drawn and quartered for using that name. <laughs> I-, I feel like there have been a lot of characters in the past few years in various pop culture properties that are sort of stand-ins for fans. Like I'm thinking specifically of Rose Tico from Star Wars The Last Jedi. And that tends to be an archetype that... Uh, that fandom doesn't really react super well to. Um, what did you guys make of inserting this character who his entire purpose seems to just be, like you said, Chris, to sort of deliver exposition about, to make him like the fan within the world of Watchmen. But also on that plane with Laurie, he says the word, he's he tries to say that he's not a fan. And the way that he says the word fan is just so contemptuous. He, it's like he is disgusted by the concept of being a fan, but he clearly is because he knows all of this stuff. So um, did you guys have any thoughts on like the larger, uh, I don't know, the larger view of like how this character fits into a world, like the meta aspect of a fan type character commenting on fan culture or anything like that? I wonder if it's how superhero fans are treated in this world, like if it's a reference to that, um, because superheroes are, or vigilantes rather, are uh, illegal. So I wonder if the fans are somehow, you know, um, discriminated against in that way as well. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think the reason that uh, that Laurie chooses Petey to to accompany her to Tulsa is because in that debriefing section uh, uh, session at the FBI, the deputy director seems resistant to Petey's ideas to really get into the psychology of Rorschach. There's a, a moment where he puts a slide up of Rorschach's journal and the director is like, what the hell is this? Like we, you know, is it the 1980s? No. Then why do we give a crap about this guy? And maybe that's something that it seemed like Laurie clocked that moment and maybe thought, Hey, there's more to this, this young man than meets the eye. But do you guys think that there's anything shady going on there with the deputy director, like not being interested in, in getting into Rorschach's Rorschach's psychology in any way? Or do you think that's just sort of like a, a typical, um, I don't know, work environment where the sort of young up and comer is maybe, uh, just overlooked by, a veteran who has his own way of doing things. You know, it, it's weird. It's, it's weird that the FBI guy, the the chief would be so dismissive. And I, I don't know if there's like something more there that we're not seeing, or if it's just, that's how law enforcement operates in this world. Like they don't really care about the, the why they just want to get to the, the who. Yeah, I guess, I guess we've seen a little bit of that, you know, speaking of that, like we saw last week, the interrogation sequence and stuff like that with um, 
with Sister Knight and, uh, or maybe that was the pilot episode where she like dragged the guy into the room and just like beat the confession out of him or beat the information out of him rather. Um, so yeah, maybe law enforcement is just a, a bit more uh, intense <laughs> in this alternate universe. But um, as they're on the plane, they look out the window and see something called the Millennium Clock. And HC, I know that you wrote uh, an article about the um, the, uh, the teaser that was at the very end of this episode, teasing next week's episode. And it features a character named Lady True, who has been referenced a couple times thus far in the episodes that we've seen, but not really overtly. Who is this character and, and what's going on with her? So Lady True is a character played by Hong Chao, who will reportedly be a major character uh, in the fall upcoming episodes. But she is a trillionaire, sort of... Um, businesswoman who owns True, I think it's Industries. Uh, it, she basically bought out Veidt's um, company and uh, owns his his real estate. And um, she is uh, responsible for that millennium clock, as you said, as well as the various uh, booths that people can contact uh, Dr. Manhattan in Mars with. And um, we don't really know much about her yet. The references that you talked about include the young girl who bought all the newspapers at the newspaper stand for Lady True and um, responded that she does read all of them. So um, she seems to be a real mover of sorts. We don't know what her intentions are yet or what part she'll play in this like overall sort of moving piece. But it seems that she has a lot of uh, weight to throw around. Yeah, it's interesting because Adrian Veidt in the comic was portrayed as like this genius who was always, you know, 10 steps ahead of everybody. So the fact that somebody bought out his company has me wondering if he was involved in that in some way, if, if she is like working for him, even though she is now the public face of this company um, and, and it's been rebranded and all of that kind of stuff. But I just wonder if there's some sort of connection there between uh, Lady True and Adrian Veidt, if, if there's something going on that that we haven't seen yet but um i don't know i guess this this show is one where it, <laughs> its mysteries are so many in every episode that it has me like grasping at straws at every you know character interaction i'm like what's going on here what's the real connection with these people so uh maybe i'm just reading too far into that one but um so uh, let's see. We uh, Lori interrogates Looking Glass. She she goes to the uh, police facility where they're doing all the you know the the pod and all of that. She she calls like a racist detector, I think, which I thought was pretty <laughs> funny. Um, Looking Glass really seems sort of shaken up by his interaction with her so far. With that character, he's been in total control. It seems like from from what we've seen of him, and especially for this interrogation to happen within what's what seems to be his his own pod you know his home turf for the tables to be turned in such a drastic way um i thought that that spoke a lot about laurie's power as a character and and um you know what sort of effect that she has on people um but he he reveals that judd's funeral is in a couple of hours and then there's this big funeral sequence where a 7th Cavalry suicide bomber interrupts the funeral. Um, Lori, who was hiding a weapon, all the people had to check in their weapons at the beginning of the ceremony, but she had one hidden, shoots him in the head. Uh, the uh, joke, uh, what is his name? Senator Keene is right next to him, and, and he's got like blood all over his collar, and he still he speaks to the media with that bloody shirt still, which is part of the reason why I was wondering if there might be something weird going on with that character because that's a very deliberate choice to not go change clothes before you, you know, address the world on camera. It's like he he wanted people to see him 
bloody and close to danger um maybe i don't know it's about building his public the public perception of him or something i don't know that all of that was going into my thought there but one of the cool things that i don't think i've seen in any other movie or tv show is angela um who is not in this episode very much that's regina king's character she uh so after laurie shoots this guy in the head he has is wearing this bomb vest that's attached to his heartbeat and there's a timer on it for some reason. I don't know why it wouldn't just immediately go off as soon as he dies. I guess that's a separate thing. But uh, this this timer starts going down, and quick thinking, Angela throws the guy, the body, into Judd's open grave and then shoves the casket on top of that. Um, it's a really cool sequence. Have you guys seen anything like that before? Can you think of anything off the top of your heads that, that has done that kind of thing in a funeral scene before? I, I think that's breaking new ground as far as I'm oh, concerned. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm breaking new ground, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's the first time I've seen something like this. It's it's a great sequence. There is a scene in the uh, amazing motion picture Last Action Hero where they go to a funeral and there's a bomb planted in a dead body and they have to get the dead body out of the funeral. That's the only thing I can think of. And again, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one else will reference Last Action Hero while talking about this show. Nice. All right. Um, so I guess all of that is really just a setup for this really cool scene where um, Angela is going through the tunnel. She, she sort of pops her head up. She has been exploring the tunnel that the 7th Cavalry had dug in order to get to that funeral, and Lori shows up, and they have this really sort of intense face-off. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, HT, what did you think about that scene? It's got, like, the two primary female characters in the show just really going head-to-head in, like, a, a battle of wits, almost. Oof, I loved it. Um, just the 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 tension and the hostility between the two women and the way that it ebbs and flows through this conversation, which is like, there's some mutual respect there, but then there's also this suspicion and distrust because we know that Angela is hiding the fact that she found um, a clan uh, outfit in her boss's uh, compartment. And um, we get also the reference to the comedian's compartment that Laurie makes as well. And um, it's just two women who are, incredibly smart and incredibly evenly matched just going toe to toe and it's just a pleasure to watch chris did you have any thoughts about this sequence it's great um yeah pretty much everything ht said is is on the money um i do like that uh, i don't know it's interesting that angela really isn't in this episode that much but the one big scene she has really really counts and um it, it's curious because it's hard to see who we're supposed to align ourselves with here. I mean, obviously Angela is the lead of the show, but at the same time, Gene Smart's character is really down on mass vigilantes. And there's, you know, a good reason behind that. So I just like that these characters are at odds for, for good reason. And there's really no right or wrong here. Maybe I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I love that, you know, this episode focuses so much on Lori and she is like the powerhouse of this episode. And then at the end of the sequence, she delivers this big monologue that's so, supposed to be so intimidating and Angela just sort of like dismissively brushes it off and like walks away and it sort of oh, shifts. pouring um, her coffee down the, the <laughs> hole too, which is great. Yeah, yeah. She like pours one out for Judd's corpse. But um, yeah, it's like the, the power dynamic immediately shifts back in Angela's favor there, even though 
uh, it had been with Lori for the whole sort of like momentum building of this entire episode. So um, that was really great. So let's jump over to uh, this mysterious location. We still don't know where Adrian Veidt is, but we do know that it is Adrian Veidt that we're dealing with. For the first two episodes of the show, they would not actually confirm that within the text of the show that Jeremy Irons was playing this character. But now uh, we have full confirmation from his own mouth that this is who he is. Um, I, I thought it was interesting because... In the previously on segment leading into this episode, there was that moment where um, they showed what happened last episode where he blew up the uh, the actor, uh, Mr. Phillips. They, he blew up that version of the, the clone or whatever, and uh, he says something along the lines of, we'll have a use for him before too long. And I'm wondering if you guys thought that we saw that use in this episode, because one of the first things we see Adrian Veidt doing in this episode is like creating this elaborate costume for another Mr. Phillips. And it seems like he is using skin and he's got like boiling fat and he's like painting this whole thing. And I was, my first thought was the reason that they included that line, we'll have a use for him before too long in the previously on was for us, from our brains to go to, are these the, you know, boiled down remains of these bodies that he's been like blowing up during his performances and he's using them to, uh, you know, I guess set the stage for whatever other crazy plan he has going on. Did you guys think that at all? Or do you think it was just him using bison and some of the other stuff that he may be hunting around on that property? That was my thought too, actually. Um, until I later saw the bison, but then I was thinking about it, and early, and when the um, the suit that he makes out of the first batch of of uh, hide and skin doesn't work, he says, "We're gonna need thicker skin," and that's when he goes to um, ride out and to hunt the bison. And I was yeah. like, "Oh, so it made me think." I wondered if that first suit was made of his servants' um, corpses, uh, and then that's when he went to uh, retrieve the skin from the bison, and then and uh, was foiled by the mysterious game warden. Um, so perhaps that's a, that that's exactly what happened, Ben. <laughs> oh, you mentioned the game warden. Who is that character? Like, we don't really know the answer. He just sort of rides up and shoots at Adrian's feet, uh, like right after Adrian had shot a bison in the eye with a, a bow and arrow. What is the dynamic there? Like, is Adrian well, actually... Oh, go ahead. Well, we learned this week that he's not there by choice because the, the game warden writes that letter and he specifically says the terms of your captivity in that letter. So it's it's uh, implied that Adrian is a prisoner here wherever this is. And that's the first sign we've gotten of that, that he's not just like hanging out there by choice. And so I think it's safe to assume he's trying to escape in some manner. And it, it, there's some sort of implication here that uh, wherever he is, it's not on Earth. That's what I'm getting from this. I, I could be wrong, but that's what I'm assuming from this because it just seems like he's not – wherever he is, it's not someplace normal. And also the, the time going by is, again, underlined because, once again, we see the cake, and this time it has three candles on it instead of two, implying that another like year has gone by. So wherever he is, time is, is moving differently there. That actually leads really nicely into a theory I wanted to mention. Uh, I can't take credit for this theory. I read about it on online in a comment, but I read a theory that um, uh, Adrian Veidt is being imprisoned by Dr. Manhattan. 
And um, that would lead into the whole not being on Earth thing because we see when he builds that suit for a servant, the servant freezes to death as if he were actually in space. Um, and then we also see the manor that he's in looking very similar to the manor that Dr. Manhattan had built on Mars before destroying it. Uh, and also everything that Chris has just said. So I do think that this might be, um, that, that might lead to that theory. That suit he makes really looks like, you know, like a steampunk space suit. So mm -hmm. I think there is something going on here with that. Yeah, it seemed clear that he was launching Mr. Phillips's into space for some reason, but also there was rope tied around their waist. So it's like, I, I don't know. I guess we didn't, we saw some plans as the camera sort of panned over all throughout the uh, the manor, and we see him, you know, going to town on the on the costumes and stuff like that. There's a, a small model of what looks like a, a catapult or like a trebuchet kind of thing. And then in the next time on uh, preview at the very end of this episode, teasing next week's episode, we see a full scale version of that thing. So it seems like he's trying to launch th these characters into space, maybe to. <laughs> to meet up with Dr. Manhattan in some way. I don't know. It, it's unclear. And, and uh, Chris, you're talking about like where he is there. Uh, I think Petey at one point mentions that he has a, f a friend who works at the Bureau's Argentina office. And there's a rumor that Adrian Veidt is not dead as the newspapers in this world claim, but is actually uh, he's had plastic surgery and he's living down in Argentina somewhere. So like, is he in Argentina? Is he not on Earth? Because I think also in the graphic novel, too, he, he lived in uh, Antarctica in this big bubble ecosystem that was, like, tropical, even though, obviously, Antarctica is, like, this full icy wasteland, but it's it's encased in this sort of glass um, dome structure, and you don't really find... It's been a while since I've read the comic, so I my it's very Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, exactly. And, and my recollection is you don't find out that it's on Antarctica and until a little ways into it, it's sort of just treated as if he's in this tropical environment. So right. I was thinking, you know, maybe the show is going to do something similar where this manor is actually either encased in another sort of dome kind of thing. And it's, I don't know, on the far side of Mars or whatever. But we've seen so much, especially in this episode, of the expansiveness of the location there. It's like he's riding and you can see, you know, huge cliffs and everything in the background and, um, you know, hunting grounds and all that stuff. It seems like a, an awful lot to uh, to include in a, a domed area if that is indeed what's going on here so um i have yeah. um i have one last theory uh that this is not adrian Veidt. oh um because when this kind of occurred to me when uh we see him put on the costume and um the like the old ozymandias costume and he is just very proud and like very excited to relive those glory days in a way that made me think that maybe it was a, a person who was playing at being ozymandias hmm. um and this is another thing that I saw pointed out in that the way that he meditates on his desk is also very similar to how to images from the graphic novel that we saw of Dr. Manhattan, um, just like meditating in that exact pose, too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, who knows? Well, that is really fascinating because I think there's the uh, what is his name? Um, Will, the character played by uh, Louis Gossett Jr., he 
they were talking about Dr. Manhattan's powers and the the extent of them in the I think the previous episode and they were saying that he could not transform to look like other people but maybe because maybe his powers have evolved and he he actually can and that is a version of him I guess it would explain a lot about why uh yeah why he's living in that manner and that there's a connection with what we've seen of Dr. Manhattan on Mars like wiping that one away it certainly sounds like a plausible theory so uh we'll have to track that and see um see if Dr. Manhattan may be more involved in this whole thing than it, it appears um, I guess leading into that, uh, the end of the episode involves uh, the car crashing down in front of Lori, and it sort of ties back in with the joke that we were, were mentioning that, that she'd been telling across the uh, course of the entire episode, and it's a, about, it's a brick joke, which I guess is like a format of a joke where you tell um, a version of a joke, um, and it's you, you sort of fake that you've screwed it up, and then you start telling a separate joke, and it actually comes back around to uh to actually be you know all tied in at the end and the idea of uh of the thing is that this girl throws this little girl who is like uh, unsuspecting um she throws this brick up and in the sky and it lands on god's head and destroys him and and lori clearly has a complicated and complex relationship with dr manhattan who is for all intents and purposes a god in this universe um and so I guess that's why she thinks that joke is funny is that it, it <laughs> I guess the, the implication there is that it could kill him and that he's not maybe as untouchable as he, he thinks. Um, but she, she ends that phone call by saying like, you know, humanity is not worth caring about anyway. Right. Like sort of uh, echoing back some of the, um, the ideals and, and beliefs that he expressed in the graphic novel. Um, but as soon as this car crashes down, which again, sort of rem- is, is like, recalls imagery of this brick coming down um she looks up in the sky and sees i think what is supposed to be mars like really far away the sort of orange red glow in the sky and she starts laughing um as if it's like the punchline of her joke like she almost got crushed by the brick for for lack of a better term so um maybe dr manhattan is involved in a more deep way like if if he's in uh, responsible for the car that that whisked will away at the end of that episode then like i don't know i guess that would explain uh or could explain the whole adrian veidt thing that you were saying ht it could explain a lot of things that dr manhattan is actually orchestrating all of this um for for what reason we don't know but um yeah, I, I think that that's most of the stuff that we were going to talk about on this episode. Do you guys have any other tidbits that were um, that stood out to you? We have to talk about the dildo. Oh everybody. yes, of course. <laughs> yes, how could I forget? Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Lead this. Lead us off with this thing. So, I mean, I don't have anything actually to say about the dildo. I just, <laughs> I just love that moment. Um, it was huge. I love that it looks like a uh, a piece of like pop art. It's like very very shiny looking. It's it was a nice little thing. And um, one thing I actually did read, uh, which I didn't pick up on, but it, it's interesting, is that in the comic, um, Lori sort of like criticizes her mother for holding on to old uh, like newspaper clippings of herself as the original Silk Spectre. And then we see that you know the big metal case that she keeps the dildo in has like an old clipping of herself. So she's sort of like, in some ways she's become, you know, her father, but she's also become her mother in a lot of ways too, where she's the thing she criticized her mother for doing, she's doing now. Hmm. And with all the decor of her apartment too, that are just the signs of the glory days. Right. Yeah. 
Um, I, one other thing I wanted, I do want to add about the car crash. Um, I think it works on two levels, both in the sort of plot uh, intrigue level, like you were talking about. Does it mean that Dr. Manhattan has a larger part to play with this? Was he listening to her joke after all and sent the car crashing down as sort of a punchline to her brick joke? Or um, I th also feel like on a thematic level, it works in sort of Laurie's losing her faith with God and then like finding re, re finding that faith in a way, or maybe like reaffirming that faith, um, whether it's actually real or not, it's kind of her struggling with her idea of what faith is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the, I think Lori and Petey are staying at the Black Freighter Inn, which I thought was interesting. This The Black Freighter obviously was the, the um, sort of comic within the comic, the pirate story uh, of the original graphic novel. And that has become so popular that it's been uh, commoditized or whatever, like turned into a series of hotels around the country, I guess. So that was kind of strange, especially like, I think that, uh, that pirate story involves like cannibalism if I'm right. So if I'm remembering right. So uh, it's a strange name for a hotel, certainly. Um, and then uh, Tartarus Acres was the name of the cemetery. Tartarus in Greek mythology is the abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as the prison for the Titans. So um, that's like a pretty intense name for a cemetery. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I don't know if I would want to bury my loved ones in Tartarus Acres, but um, I guess I guess the other thing that I noticed was the the pirate imagery sort of across the manor. Like, there's that scene where um, Adrian Veidt is is riding Bucephalus, his horse, and he rides past this flag that looks very, you know, very much like the Tales of the Black Freighter. Uh, sort of imagery and then also the game warden has a skull and crossbones um what do you what do you call that like a stamp like a mark that that goes across the, the seal yeah something seal. like that yeah. um so I, I wonder if that means like uh i don't know forbidden in some way you know like if that that was an area that he because uh, he rides past that flag and then is sort of warned by the game warden so maybe he's like uh he's crossed a line that he wasn't supposed to cross to to go out and hunt that bison and the game warden has that um insignia or whatever to to sort of uh let him know that he's in charge i don't know that dynamic is really interesting to me i'm not sure if we have enough information to really you know be able to speculate what exactly is going on there but um anyway that pirate imagery i thought was uh was a standout kind of reference to the original graphic novel and then maybe um you know tells its own story within the the context of this episode too so um anything else from you guys do you have any any other uh tidbits that you wanted to bring up no i think that's it all right yeah. Uh, Another well, good episode of Watchmen and if, our Watchmen podcast. Yes, if we do say so ourselves. So hopefully uh, hopefully you all agree. If you want to um, shoot us an email, let us know what you think. You can send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to, need, uh, to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. You can find more about Watchmen uh, on and, and all of that kind of stuff at slashfilm.com. I'm, I'm going to link to a bunch of Watchmen pieces in the show notes of this episode so you can read chris's review you can read our list of the easter eggs and stuff like that too um slash film daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site and you can subscribe to the show on itunes google podcasts overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps don't forget to rate and review the podcast on itunes tell your friends about the show spread the word thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time 